James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will, will bring. Come on, how many of, you know, of us know that? We don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what's going to happen literally the next day. And then James asked this question, I think a question that all of us have asked at one point or another, whether that's just been in a coffee conversation in the deep uh, halls of prayer, maybe one night after bad pizza or one of your college experiences. Watch what he says. He says, what is your life? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It goes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. This arrogance he's talking about is this idea that we boast as if we know how everything's going to go in life, that as if we have all control over everything. One thing that I believe about humanity is we're control freaks, right? Well, that's not my personality. It doesn't matter. You're a human, and we like to control things, don't we? That's kind of the way that we, that we roll. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This morning, as we continue on in our series, Jimmy, I want to speak to you from the subject managing mist. Managing mist as we deal with the purpose of God for our lives, and more importantly, the time that he has allocated to us. Will you pray with me just one more time? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive, that it's active, that it's powerful, and that it's a true word. There's a million and one other things in this life that vie for our attention that try to speak half-truths to us. God, we desire your full truth, the truth that is found in your word. So God, may you teach us this morning, challenge us this morning, correct us this morning, inspire us this morning, heal us this morning through your word. We love you and we worship you in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, In the year 1820, in the North Sea, which takes up residence between the British Isles and the mainland of Northwestern Europe, would experience the winter, the worst winter that it's ever had. It wouldn't be the worst winter because of snow or freezing conditions or inclement weather. It wouldn't be the worst winter that it's ever experienced based upon the conditions of sea. But rather it would be the worst winter because in that winter, 2,000 ships and over 20,000 seafarers would lose their life this winter would be one of the worst winters that they would ever experience. Until a man named Samuel Plimsoll would come around. He was hated and feared all at the same time due to his persuasive and downright annoying persistence to affect change in the world around him. You ever met that person before? All they want to do is change stuff and they just go, 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 go. And it's in 1876 that he would set his sight, set his gaze upon the regulations affecting merchant shipping. He would research this in other winters and other moments where ships would find themselves wrecked and loss of life and cargo would take place. And in his research, he would discover that owners of these ships would bog down and fill their ships with as much cargo and people as they possibly could in order to save the precious commodity of time and resource. These ships would eventually be known as coffin ships. The reason they would be coffin ships is because the the actual ability for them to reach their destination become, become greatly diminished because of how weighed down and how full of cargo they would, they would find themselves. The interesting thing is, is that these owners of these ships, they would do an interesting thing before they would set sail with these ships is they would take out a very large insurance policy. 
And so it became common practice in many ways, in an ethical practice, they would stock up on their insurance so that when these ships went, if they broke down, if they, were, if they were destroyed and people were lost and cargo was lost, they would receive their insurance and it was no harm, no foul to them. Samuel Plimsoll became very frustrated in that. And with that, in 1876, he would invent and create the regulations for what they call the Merchant Act of 1976. And what they would create is this little thing called the Plimsoll Line. The Plimsoll Line would be placed on the hull of a ship, indicating the amount of weight and cargo that was on that ship. And if the ship was in water and water would rise above that line, then they would have authorities who would come in, reshift cargo, make sure that the manifest was accurate so that they could evenly distribute the weight so that the ship would have a better chance of survival in inclement conditions, storms, so on and so forth. It was a practice that was common, but Samuel Plimsoll was, well, he desired to make sure that it didn't happen anymore. They created a line to make sure that a ship understood and knew what its ability was to navigate. You know, for many of us, our lives are no different. To save as much time as possible, we load our lives up with everything that we can, failing to realize that the boat of our life is sinking well below a healthy line, endangering our life, our faith, our relationships, our marriages, our mental and physical well-being, and just about every other aspect of our lives. The question is, why? Why do we do this to ourselves? James submits to us today that the reason for this approach to life is because we have not yet created a healthy relationship with time. Come on, everybody shout time. Time. And more specifically, the time allotted to each of us by God. Now, as humans, we desire to understand ourself and our lives in relationship to eternity and God's overarching plan for our lives. Time is the great equalizer in it all. Thus, we have a growing sense of alienation and confusion due to the institution of time. We have developed pressured and hurried lives, running from one thing to the other in a perpetual state of urgency, only to realize at the end of the day, we have yet again spent our time mostly on the irrelevant and inconsequential. You ever been there before? Has time ever gotten away from you? Have you ever went to go do an email or send a text, and then an hour later, your life and soul was sucked away by Facebook? (laughs) Right? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I'm just going to check it for a second. (laughs) And you're in the vacuum of Facebook. Many of you right now during the course of this message will check your watch repeatedly or your phone pretending you're taking notes, but really you're staring at the clock. When's this guy over and done? Why? Time, it rules us off. Time hurries up during the NFL season for some of us. When is church over? (laughs) Time for me has flown by in this season of, of working through this pregnancy and waiting for kiddo. Time is going so slow right now as we wait for the arrival. We're just waiting. And no matter where you find yourself at with time, we are all at one point or another frustrated by it. James, the context that we're dealing with here, shifts his attention to the struggle that many of us face dealing with time, destiny, and our control over it. Using the picture of tradesmen and businessmen who were boastfully asserting that their life was solely and completely in their control, James sets out to remind them and us that there is more to our lives than what we plan, pursue, amass, or conquer on a daily basis. And with one of his most pointed illustrations, James likens our life to a mist 
In some translations, it would say vapor. And James uses this illustration to help us see that life, the allotted time that each of us has, goes by fast. It's here one minute and gone the next. It's but a mist. Have you ever tried to grab a hold of mist before? In preparation for this series, I boiled some water and tried to grab the mist. It doesn't work. You can't grab a hold of it. Mist is a tricky thing. Why? Because it literally is gone here one moment and gone the next. So how do we deal with this life that's but a mist? While we can't completely grab a hold of it and control it, what we can do is set up some parameters in our life that help us box it in a little bit so that we can direct it towards that which God has for us. So that we can live out the purpose and the plan. So that we can have redemption over our time. So that the time of our lives can be spent in a way that brings glory and honor to Jesus. Come on, we all have a little bit of time. Some of us are going to live long than others. And I don't know about you, but I want to make the best of my time. I want to make the most of my time. I want my time to be productive. I want my time to mean something. I want to make an impact in the world around me. I want my time to add up. And so we're dealing with time this morning. And so I've got four points. Two today. <laughs> Maybe one. Two next week. So if you would help me out, I want to look at two, well, four important behaviors that help us to do so. Help us manage our mist. Two today, two next week. Everybody shout number one for me. Number one, the first one is this, managing our mist. We must align our priorities with God's plans. We must align our priorities with God's plans. Listen to Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time. Because the days are evil, and therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It is right here that Paul the Apostle brings these two issues into tension. The use of our time and God's will for our lives. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when we're living life, we're doing our thing, and we've got our priorities Sometimes they can fundamentally go against what God has for us. And we struggle with that tension. Many of us will ask, well, what is the will of God for my life? Here's a quick little one. It's right here. If you've ever wondered what the will of God, just open your Bible. That's the will of God for our life. Now, I understand that there's specific will. There's will that is registered to each and every single one of us, uh, inherent in our design, the way God's created us. But at the end of the day, God's got a massive will for our life. Just open up the Bible, we can start there. One such author said this, it's been said that obedience is the organ of spiritual knowledge. But as this is true. God does not reveal his will to the curious or the careless, but to those who are ready and willing to obey him. In other words, a lot of us are asking to know God's will, but don't care to do anything with it. You ever been there before? It's like picture, picture TV. I have what I want to watch, but for giggles, I want this on the other side. Like, I want to watch the NFL, but SpongeBob is kind of fun. SpongeBob. <laughs> One of the greatest issues that we face with time is time spent on things with little or no eternal value. Most specifically, the amount of time, right, on things that should be low priority in comparison to the plans and purposes of God. And one of the greatest reasons for this, this type of living, 
One of the greatest reasons that we have a tendency to pursue our own priorities instead of trying to figure out what God says on the matter is because many of us have an inaccurate understanding of God's plan and purpose for our lives. We believe one of two things. We believe that either his plan for our life is to be happy or to be horrible. In other words, we somehow believe that God's greatest desire is for us to be happy. My emojis all the way up. And so everything that I pursue in my life is about my happiness, my feelings, making me feel good, getting what I want, having everything that I need and desire in life. And you would be wrong. God's greatest desire isn't for you to be happy. I know, popped some of your bubbles. But then some of us think that God's, well, his design and plan for me is just to be horrible. He wants to send me to foreign missions. He wants to keep me in Utah. He wants me to go to this church. He wants me to be friends with this person. He wants me to stay at the job even though I want to leave. I don't want to do any of this. God, why do you want my life to be horrible? And those would be theologically and theoretically wrong. God's design isn't for you to be happy, nor is it for you to be horrible. God's design for our life is for you to be holy. Now, some of us freak out about that because like, wait, God wants me to be perfect? No, holiness is not perfection. Holiness is faith-filled consistency. In other words, living life in such a way that it brings honor and glory to God, but at the same time, I find fulfillment in it. We don't have to live in this shredded tension where I believe that God has this for me, but things don't happen to add up. He doesn't want me happy. He doesn't want me horrible. He wants me holy. He wants me holy. And so then we got to figure out how to do that. I'm going to invite Mitch and, uh, and Justin and Devon. If you guys could go grab those balloons and, and pop up here on, on stage. I want to illustrate this. While they're coming, while they're coming up here, if, if the guys in the back, if you guys can throw up that picture, we're going we're gonna to learn about everything. Um, <laughs> now, for those of you who are much smarter than me in this place, um, uh, just be quiet. Hold, hold your opinion to yourself. <laughs> Just shake your head and nod, okay? Um, I decided to do a little research this, this, uh, this week preparing for this message, and God just rocked my world on some stuff, so I want to play around with the way that we look at things. One of the reasons that we have a tendency to uh, deal with this equation in an inaccurate and inappropriate way with God is because humans have a tendency to look at things linear, don't we? Top-down, American business is built on top-down leadership. Leadership, for many of us, is built top-down. We look at things as one, two, three, A, B, C. It's progressive. It's, 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 it's linear in nature. Can we, can we agree on that this morning? But what if God doesn't view things that way? And more importantly, what if God never designed us to view things that way? In the first 34, 31 verses of Genesis chapter 1, God launches into creation, now, no matter where you're at this morning on the issue of creation, let's just, for the sake of the argument this morning, work with me here. In the first 31 verses of creation, God sets out and says, let there be light, let there be this, let there be that. Let the heavens separate from, uh, from, from everything else and let earth separate from, from water, and he creates animals. And then he says something interesting. He says, let there be man and woman, and he creates them. What we find out through science is that God created the universe. Now the universe is quite interesting. We've got about, we've got nine planets in our universe and they all orbit around the sun. 
Now, the interesting thing about an orbit is that it's not circular in motion, but it's actually oval, okay? If you studied this at all, like I said, the really, really smart people, shh, okay? Just breaking it down easy, all right? Our orbit, and so these planets, they orbit the sun, and at different points in their journey, they find themselves further away and or closer, depending on the season of orbit. Now, I want to illustrate how we work as people. Devon is going to be God today. <laughs> Actually, we're going to go this way so everybody can see. Move, God, move. <laughs> okay, you everybody see that? So if I were to ask you the Sunday school question for 200, who and what should be first in our lives? We all say? God. Yeah, it's the easy answer. So we put God at the top. Makes sense. Then I ask this question, who and what's next? And we go quiet. <laughs> and this is the same thing happened in the first service, and this will be what happens in the, in the, in the, uh, the other one that we have. Um, <laughs> This is where the tension is provided for us because we start to wrestle out. So we want to say, of course, family is, is second on the linear progressive ladder of life that we like to, to, to operate in. We say family second. But how many of you now understand that it's almost an impossibility if you do the math because we would realize that we actually spend more of our time doing... So what do we do? We say, well, work is second, family is third, but then now there's a lot of guilt and shame connecting those two realities because we're trying to figure out, well, how does this work? Because I know that the right answer is supposed to be family, but I've got, I've got work, but then the family becomes at, at odds with my work, and then my work becomes at odds, and then I'm frustrated, but can I do them both? And then I'm dying, so then I don't have time for anything else like helping. That would be fun. I, would lo I want to help people and have impact, but I also want to have fun because I don't believe it's just nine to five, buy a boat and die, and so that's not what life is supposed to be, but then I have this little thing called church. They shout a lot there, but I enjoy going at least once a month. But then we inherently look at this and we go, wait a second, but due to time and con constraints and everything like that, so then what we start doing is we start playing the juggling match. And, oh, man, my family's suffering right now, so I've got to, oh, God, man, I can't, I'm going to try not to work on the weekends to put my family first, but now my bills are suffering. But I really still, I want to play that golf game with my buddies, so can we bump fun up, please? And can we just pop the balloon of church all in, like, as a whole? Because if I help people, then then that's good enough, right? And then so we start doing this weird math of, you guys see how linear progression doesn't work? Okay, now, the reason that it doesn't work is because you and I have not been designed to operate in linear progression, but rather orbital construction. And what I mean by that is, what if we change it up and we say that God is the center of my life, and now everything orbits in and around him. Get the orbit right, guys, we're going this way. <laughs> Now, I know it's an analogy that at certain points and for all the real scientific, slow down. <laughs> the orbit doesn't go that fast. <laughs> at certain points in the orbit, some things become closer and then some things drift out. What we're trying to do is understand the cadence of seasons in our life. Seasons are point number three, so I hope you come back next week. <laughs> Shameless plug. All right. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to get all of these things to work, not against each other, but with each other. 
They orbit in and around God. He becomes the center of our universe. Something interesting that I found this week, and God really spoke to my heart as I looked at this. All of our planets orbit around the sun, S-U-N. Is it possible that by creation, through God's design, our life has been authored to find orbit around the sun, S-O-N? Jesus at the center of it all changes the way that we do life. And one of the reasons that we, we, we struggle with aligning our priorities is because we believe in linear and then we have got to start demonizing things. Yeah. We've got to pit things against each other. See, in Christ, our work time is redeemed. Our family time is redeemed. Our serving time is redeemed. Our time is redeemed. And we actually have time for everything that God has called us to do well if we learn to allow them to find orbit in and around God. We can actually participate in God's plan and purpose for our life. He's called you to have a great family. He's called you to excel in your work. He's called you to impact the world. He's called you to have a little fun in life. He's called you for all these things. We just got to find some orbit around God, and we can have a, a life where He becomes our sufficiency. And then watch this. When these things are in orbit, none of them become our idols. Because at a certain point, we start fighting as, where's God in the equation now? Am I talking to anybody this morning? <laughs> Linear progression versus orbital construction. Thanks, guys. Can you give, give these guys a round of applause? So the point is this. We must, we must align our priorities with God's plans. Now the question is, how do you do that? I don't know. That's a whole other message. <laughs> On the how, I think the first protocol is this. Get God at the center. Get God at the center. Allow him to be the center of everything. And my priorities can start, my marriage can, can be in orbit. My work can be in, in orbit. And now I actually start to enjoy these things because I start to see how God is working in them. Like, oh, enjoy work? Yeah, if God's at the center, it's possible. Engage in making an impact in the world around me? Yes, it's possible. Why? Because God's at the center. I'm learning to orbit with him. Come on, everybody, shot number two. Number two. The second one, the last one for this morning is, is this. We must move our focus from fear to faith. We must move our focus from fear to faith. Second Timothy chapter one, verse six says this. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Watch this, verse seven. For God Gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love, and self-control. The New American Commentary writes it like this. Concern for our hidden destiny can fill us with fear. The paralyzing power of worry can obstruct our progress. As long as there has been people, there have been soothsayers and wizards exploiting our anxieties. There's been TV networks and media exploiting our anxieties. If prostitution is the world's oldest profession, surely fortune-telling is the second oldest. And then he goes on to say this, tell me of tomorrow is the plea of the stock market speculator, the competitive businessman, the sports forecaster, and the young couple in love. 
The student asks, will I graduate? The manager muses, will I be promoted? The person in the doctor's waiting room clenches his hands and asks, is it cancer or indigestion? Fear has a tendency to become the ruler of our time. Fear has a tendency to be the very thing that manages our mist. You ever notice that before? Instead of faith-filled missed engagement, we have a tendency to hold back in managing our mist appropriately because we are afraid to make decisions. It amazes me how much of our time is spent fearing. And from that fear, we make decisions that end up wasting the time that God has given us to operate in faith, mainly because we never take the step that faith directs and we end up standing still because of what fear suspends. Come on, you ever been afraid before? Have you ever had one of those, those times where you wake up in the middle of the night and you're so afraid because you think something's in your bedroom? Like, just think back to when you were a kid. I still do this. <laughs> I wake up because of a dream or something like that, and you wake up and you stay there. You're still in your bed, even though logically you know there's nothing in your bedroom, right? There's nothing there, but you're just like, I will hold it all night long. <laughs> I'm not moving. I'm not getting up. I'm not moving from my covers. And I remember this especially as a kid, being so fear-laden for no reason that I wouldn't get up to do what I needed to do. And I think life's the same way. I think so many times in life we become so suspended by fear. We get so freaked out. We get so in our heads about stuff that we never engage what God has for us simply because I'm standing still in fear. I'm petrified. You ever been fearful before? The reason for this fear is because we give more power to the feeling of fear than we do the facts of faith. We give more feeling to fear. Feelings. Have you ever had your life overridden by your feelings? And we give more power to the feeling of fear than we do the facts of, of faith. 1 Kings chapter 19, one of my most favorite chapters in the Bible, tells us the story of Elijah. Elijah had moved in his ministry moments from calling down no more rain to the king who was Ahab at the time to defeating uh, Jezebel's prophets of Baal. And he finds himself in this predicament after it's all happened. One day he gets a message. He looks in his inbox on Instagram and he realizes that Jezebel just tagged him. And she says in as few characters as possible, I'm going to kill you. And after defeating the prophets of Baal, after standing before King Ab and saying there will be no more rain, something interesting happens at the word of Jezebel. Watch what it, watch what it says. Verse 3 of chapter 19, 1 Kings. Then he was afraid. I find it interesting that a man who had had so many faith-filled moments would all of a sudden at the word of Jezebel be fearful. Why? Because human nature, human nature is to acquiesce to our feelings of fear more than we would like. Harvard psychologist Jerome Brunner says this, you're more likely to act yourself into a feeling than feel yourself into an action. What's he saying? 
at many points and most points of our lives, we're going to have to make a decision that I'm stepping over fear, that I'm stepping over insecurity. I'm stepping over the things that stop me from engaging all that God has for me. I'm going to act my way into what God has me, not just feel my way into it. Because how many of you know the situations and the circumstances and everything surrounding that thing that God has for you, it's not always going to be easy, but I can act my way into a decision. I can act my way into God's plan. I'm going to take some back steps and say fear you got no place in my world I'm gonna overcome my fear the question is do we have the ability to do that do we have the ability to overcome our fear the Bible tells us yes right there in Timothy we're told that we haven't been given a spirit of fear but of what power Love, self-control. As we get ready to land this plane, let's talk about those three things really fast. Everybody shout power. 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 Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Don't worry about the eclipse tomorrow. Everything is going to be fine. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he goes on to say, that, but this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying to us that there's power. It's power that we've been given to overcome fear. See, there's no reason to be anxious. There's no reason to be fear-driven. There's no reason to be fear-laden. The power that we have been given is attached to a greater person that is the person of Christ. It is the Spirit of God. We have power by way of the Holy Spirit in our lives to overcome fear. Fear. We live in a time and a culture that uses fear to its advantage, don't we? It uses fear to sabotage. There's a lot that we can be fearful about. But I'm choosing today, come on, if I can preach for a second, I'm choosing today to be faith-filled. I'm not going to fear nuclear attack or terrorism or political upheaval. I'm not going to fear the market or lack thereof. I'm not going to fear because of what I don't have or can't get. I'm not going to fear the diagnosis or the determination. I'm not going to fear myself because I realize that I've been given a power like no other that equips me like no other to live like no other. I'm not going to fear today. question is this, will I operate in that power? The second thing that he says is not only do I have power, but I got love. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say love. Turn to your other neighbor and say, okay. 1 John chapter 4 verse 8. I hope you love your Bible. I know this is a lot of scripture. I'm trying to move through it as fast as I can, but we got to understand this. Not only do I have power, but I got love. And this is what the Bible says about love. 1 John chapter 4 verse 18. There is no fear in love. You hear that? There's no fear in love. And then watch what he says. But perfect love casts out all fear. Oh, that's so good news. Like if you don't hear anything else this morning, church, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. Not lightly pushes it out. Not relegates it to the corner of my life. Oh, perfect love, it casts it out. It pulls it out. It fights it out. It wars it out. And we've got a Savior in heaven. Jesus is his name who cast out all fear, who pushed it out. And he says, you don't need to fear no more. Why? Because I perfectly love you. 
And all of us are looking for love in all the wrong places. We're looking for love, perfect love in our marriages. You won't find it. Why? Because they're human. You're looking for perfect love for your job. Have you ever noticed your job doesn't care about you? I'm just saying. You're looking for perfect love from politicians. We'll just leave that there. You're looking for perfect love for your education. You're looking from it, looking for it from money. You're looking, you, you fill in the blanks. Where are we trying to find this love from? And the only one that we can find true love, perfect love, audacious love, uncontrollable love, unceasing love, the love that surpasses all other is in Jesus. His name is Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It will forever be Jesus. And this is what the Bible says, Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, who shall separate us from this love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he goes on to say this, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Come on, and the church shouted. It's the Bible. Come on, how does that not get you like all rockied up for Monday morning? I'm ready to go. I read a scripture like that. I'm ready to go. Come on, world, let's do this. Come on, devil, come at me. Come on, fear, try to have your place. Because last time I checked, this spot's occupied by Jesus, so you got no seat in this car ride right here. I can't be afraid. And the last thing he says is self-control. That's an interesting thought, self-control. I can actually overcome fear with self-control. Not just power, not just love, but self-control. It's the trifecta. Why does he tell us self-control? Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says this, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? Thanks Paul, that was deep. But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. And then watch, he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do so to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating at the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Author John Piper would write this concerning self-control. He says, fundamental to the Christian view of self-control is that it's a gift. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But it's the fruit that we like to overlook. Galatians 5, through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and we go, oh, that's so nice because we don't like the next part, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit in our lives is the ability to exercise faith 
in the areas of our lives that God says, I've given you power because of the love that I have for you to exercise self-control in this so you can overcome fear. You can step over the fear. You've got the power, you've got the love, and now you have the ability to step over it. So run, run that race that I have for you. Run with everything that's in you. Run to the finish line of that race because I am faithful to complete my promises. I'm faithful because I started a new work in you and I'm gonna bring it to completion. We gotta run, we can't be fear laden. We gotta be faith filled.